This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn, and I am solo today, and don't tell anybody else, but I'm loving it. Uh, We are joining you here from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. It is a gorgeous day. I am stuck inside, but that's totally fine because I'm here with you. But we are moving on to our next guest, who is Barrett Ward, the CEO and founder of Able, a rapidly growing Nashville-based ethical fashion brand. Hey, Barrett, welcome to Dollars and Change. Nick, how are you? I am great. It is a delight to speak with you. Um, Just for our listeners, full disclosure, I did meet Barrett when I was down in Nashville early in February, and we just really hit it off, and I thought the story of Abel was really cool and wanted to share it with you. So thanks for joining us, Barrett. My pleasure. Thanks, Nick. So, Barrett, let's start from the, you know, the very basic uh, background of who you are and sort of like what your personal journey before Abel was. Man, I've got a lot of uh, early graying hair to uh, tell that story with. But, um, yeah, I grew up in Indiana, and I went to Indiana University. And um, we have a business school there at Indiana University that's pretty strong, not Wharton. Um, It's the Kelly School, isn't it? It's the Kelly School of Business. Yes. Which they would not even let me step foot in. Um, <laughs> but I, I admired these people from afar, and uh, I studied Japanese language and literature while I was in college, which kind of led me on a trajectory that was international, and, and I spent a lot of time traveling the world in my 20s, and I think, you know, that, that had a big impact on me. I was in the for-profit world as a sales manager of a publishing company in my 20s. And then I, in those travels around the world, uh, got to experience poverty for the first time. You know, that that moment, I think, when all of us come face-to-face with social justice for the first time really impacted me. I was on a trip to Peru, and I had never seen this concept of, as shallow and as un, uneducated as this makes me sound, I had never seen the concept of people living in 10 sheds that were the size of my car. And, um, and I saw these little children step out and, um, and throwing dirty water in their face to clean themselves. And, and my world was completely shocked. I just, just did not know that that existed. So that kind of got me into the nonprofit space. And so started traveling the world from there and, thinking, what do I want to be a part of? And I went um, to Ireland and worked with children in Ballymena, traveled to states and different uh, different communities in, in the states that might need assistance, the, the marginalized communities. And then I went to Ethiopia on a trip. And when I moved back, uh, I eventually just started working in a nonprofit to help uh, with women and children, vulnerable women and children. Uh, and, and, you know, as we know, in poverty, the first people to get hit are only women and children. So uh, that was the space that I was working in. And uh, then I got married. And my wife got a job offer, actually, ironically, to move back to Ethiopia. 
And so we moved back to Ethiopia while we worked in the nonprofit space. And again, I was continuing to work with women and children there. And that was the first time I had ever come up close and personal with the, com- the just the injustice of the commercial sex industry. Seeing young girls for sex slavery um, and just even the impact of extraordinary poverty drawing women into the into the world of prostitution. Uh, and, and what, so, so what Barrett, before we get too far down the road, because we've just had a lot to, to digest. So yeah, baby, that was a lot. No, that's OK, because we're getting into, you know, the meat of, I think, your inspiration. And, you know, just to, to unpack that for our listeners, you know, there's some for profit experience, you know, lots of traveling the world, sort of seeing, yeah. uh, you know, every just the injustices of the world and extreme poverty and i you know i don't want as we're about to move into the the remainder of the conversation i definitely don't want to be mansplaining any of this um for, for either of us um but you know mansplaining. yeah so you're so you get to ethiopia your wife has a job and you you're exposed to commercial sex work um yeah and and sort of seeing probably a lot of different things and we've actually had a a um a guest on our show before who focused actually on sort of positive sexual sex work and and sort of you know things that they um you know a woman's body again I don't want to mansplain this you can go find it the find on find the former segment on demand but uh this is just an interesting topic so you're exposed to sex work in Ethiopia go yeah no I think you're right and I think you know, I think what you're talking about is this term commercial sex industry is an important term because uh, a lot of people t- put the word prostitution and add shame to it, uh, when in many communities around the world it is a way for a woman to sustain a living for her family. And, you know, and we all have different experiences around it. My experience around it was meeting a lot of women, though, that did not want to be in the commercial sex industry, but found that it was their only way to sustain a living. And what I what I heard was heroic stories. I didn't hear women making bad choices with their lives and ending up in the sex industry. I met one woman that had gone into the commercial sex industry to save her sister from breast cancer. And so maybe to the point of what your previous uh, you know, relationship was around the commercial sex industry and, and that, that person spoke to is you meet some of the most heroic people you would ever meet and you realize that uh, it's not, at least for me, let me speak to myself, I had a prejudice towards what I thought it was and I had a prejudice towards the kind of person that I thought probably ended up in that. Probably people that had made bad choices. And it was just nothing close to that. It was people making sacrifices for their loved ones that I could never even imagine having to make myself. And so as we heard the stories of those women, I would just close that point by saying, I heard women saying, we want to get out, but we don't have another opportunity. And we need a job. And so while we were in the charity space to that point and working and kind of working to equip local communities to meet those needs through the charity side of child care and rehabilitation and health care. Seventy five percent of the women that were in the commercial sex industry there had uh, were HIV positive. And so the charity team around them to do that 
And at the same time, what these women always said was, at the end of this road, we are grateful for the charity, but if we do not have a job, we're going straight back into the sex industry, and we don't want to. And so their challenge to us was, and what it made us realize, was that if we were going to be serious about solutions to poverty, we, we had to not just be in the charity side, which is critical. There are people that are destitute in the world, but we also had to be in the side of economic solutions. And so that's how we really got into starting ABLE. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, and I'm your host, Nick Ashburn. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can always shoot us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 or at Wharton Social. Um, you know, we've been speaking with Barrett Ward, who is the CEO and founder of Able, um, a Nashville-based ethical fashion brand. But we are talking about uh, women in Ethiopia right now that are or that have experienced uh, or, you know, been part of the commercial sex work uh, industry there. And you were just getting, Barrett, to the point where you were trying to come up with a commercial solution that would be sustainable and, and provide, you know, economic opportunity to the women coming out of the industry. Yes. And so when we were speaking to the women, the thing that, as I mentioned, they they consistently said is we just need a job. We need a job to get on the other side of this. And when we asked them what they'd want to do, the thing that they said was we'd love to make scarves. We'd love to weave scarves. And you come to find out that weaving has been an industry in Ethiopia since the Queen of Sheba. And, and so these women were very excited about making scarves and that's how we ended up in the fashion world is these women said you know we'd love to make uh you know iphones we'd be an iphone company (laughs) um and so so it's not that you had a personal affinity toward fashion this was really you know customer centric in some in a lot of senses absolutely i don't even know anything about fashion um and yet here you are i don't think i do and he and yet here we are um yeah, and so that that's really how we got started. And then, you know, my wife and I are actually based in Nashville, Tennessee. And and so we've also worked with women here in Nashville, Tennessee, now that make our jewelry that have overcome, whether it's addiction or the similar kind of circumstances of the commercial sex industry. You know, ABLE is about creating economic solutions for women, um, good-paying, fair-wage jobs in order to to give them hope and dignity in their work. So you just mentioned scarves and jewelry. I have to say, folks, because I was actually in store in uh, in Nashville, that the product line has expanded quite a bit, and it looks pretty good. So what else are you selling nowadays? Yeah, so really, you know, as we saw an opportunity, as we saw ourselves growing and starting to have more influence and consumers were we're behind this idea of empowering women, then we thought, where do we go next? You know, what's the next level of impact for us? And, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is the level of impact that we have also ties to the breadth of our product line because we now also sell leather bags and, and we also sell denim. So beautiful denim jackets and jeans, and then we also sell um, shoes. And and so when I talk about the breadth of our impact, you know, for example, shoes are really popularly made in both Peru and Brazil, 
uh, in South America. So we've really moved into that region. And denim is really uh, significant in Mexico. And so we've, we've moved there as well. But following that, as we've grown, is the mission of really making sure that our women are paid a fair living wage wherever we go. And it's important to note that in the fashion industry, it's, it's only 2% of the women that make products around the world earn a living wage. And so what that really means is that about 98% of the women in the world that make products around the world uh, barely can meet, make ends meet. And so for us, that's just unacceptable. And so what we want to try to do as a company is compete as a fashion company with the big boys. We want to cover the breadth of all those product categories, but we want to do it in a responsible way that will drive consumer demand uh, to companies that do it the right way. All right. So, Barrett, I have to ask, though, you know, as someone who is now sort of managing a business with a global supply chain and trying to meet your social impact targets, you know, like let's take fair living wage as one of them. You know, how do you manage that? How can our listeners better understand like, whoa, these are the dynamics I have to think about if I'm going to do something this audacious? Well, I mentioned earlier that I'm, I've started green early. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so I probably took on more than I should have early on. I, I, I think my best advice to anybody wanting to to begin into this space would would be very very pragmatic about fully defining your business strategy before you launch. Don't don't step in without really into especially in today's marketplace that requires really good marketing, a beautiful website, amazing product. You want to line all that stuff up, but you also want to be very real and sincere about the fact that your your mission is having a genuine impact. So as much as you have people vet your business strategy, I think you have to put as much or equal or or, I say, or more diligence into the type of impact that you're having. And is it just something that you came up with as a good idea to have an impact? Or have you reached out to, uh, for example, what you guys are doing, Nick, with uh, Four for Women, and really just being vulnerable and saying, the impact that I think I'm having here is—is is there anything I'm missing? Is it—is 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 it truly going to have long-term benefit to the communities that I'm reaching out to? So I would say have those two things, both your business strategy and your social impact, vetted before you before you launch. And and the last thing I'll say as to why is, is consumers can sniff out someone that is more into their marketing than their mission. And I think they're over it. I think this next generation of consumers really wants to see evidence and proof and vulnerability, not only around the things that you're doing well as a company with your social impact, but I think they also want to know where you're falling short and what you're doing to to improve. Because that well, is- and that sounds like pretty good business advice. Like, how are you really, you know, tracking your KPIs on the business side, on the social impact side, and and how do you? provide potentially a level of transparency to consumers to say, hey, we're trying to improve in this area. And I think you all do something around, you know, publishing wages. You showed me this tag. Like, imagine a tag on your jeans, you know, the the price tag, the whatever, and, and you did something there. What is that? Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that 
that 98% of the women, and, and fashion is the largest industrial employer of women in the world. There's an estimated 45 million women in the world making our product, uh, you know, the ones that we wear every single day. And what we felt like had to happen was if so few of them were earning a wage that was fair, then we felt like we had to start empowering consumers with that data point of information, which is this. There's, as far as I've seen, we're the first brand in the world to start publishing our lowest wages. And it's not our average wage, not a total labor cost for the garment, but we flat out are putting out to consumers, here's what our lowest wage is. And we've created, it really looks like a nutritional labor, right. or a nutritional label that shows the lowest wage of the person that is making these products. And we just think that's important because I believe that if consumers have that information, then they will make choices to buy products that they are confident in that will have the right impact on the women that are making them. Well, and you, you mentioned sort of uh, competing with the big boys. And, you know, if, if I'm seeing that on the label and I'm looking at the price, you know, what's the sort of differential that we're talking about here? You know, the, 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 here's the crazy thing. You know, we would compare our price points to those of, like, maybe the Madewells of the world or the uh, Banana Republics of the world. And, and so it's pretty middle market. Um, but there's two things that I would say are really important. Number one, here's a, here's a mind-blowing statistic. I'm bracing myself. About, what's that? I'm bracing myself. Brace yourself is that it only takes about 1% to 3% of the total price of a product. If, if every brand just gave 1% to 3% of the total price of a product back to the people making it, everybody making fashion products would be earning a living wage. And so if you put 1% on $100, I think we can all do the math that that's only a dollar. And it shows how little we have to do and maybe how pervasive greed is uh, that that we're not at a place where 100% of the people in the world earn a living wage. Does that make sense? I, I think it makes sense to me. Um, hopefully it does to our listeners. And I would, I would potentially extrapolate that out. I do not have the data back to back this up, but that within a margin of error, that could be true across many different sort of manufacturing heavy industries. I would assume. I know that it's deeply true in the NASA or in the uh, in the fashion space around the world, and you know, and we can we can take that into um, Asian countries. We see Cambodia, Vietnam, obviously China are massive producers, um, but but a living wage in those communities, a lot of the times, is only one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty dollars just because they live on such a different economic scale than what is going on in the United States. Sure. And that is a deep economic conversation. But just to simplify it, the bottom line is, is it doesn't take a lot to get everybody in your supply chain to a living wage. And so that's what our commitment is at ABLE. And we're not there yet. We're climbing that hill. We, we're not saying that we're perfect. We're just saying we want to be perfectly transparent because – we think consumers are okay with us not being perfect yet. In fact, just a business philosophy for us is we don't want to put into the world that you've got to be perfect before you can be honest. And and that's what we're trying to do is walk with our consumers down a road saying, let's get everybody in our supply chain 
to a living wage, help us demand that of, of our manufacturers, help us demand that of other brands. And we believe that if we can put that, that demand in the consumer's hands, then we'll see poverty change more quickly in the last in the next 10 years than we will have seen in the last thousand. And Barrett, you know, you you have both for-profit and non-profit experience. I think I know the answer to this, but let's make it explicit for our listeners. You know, what were some of the considerations you made um, in terms of becoming a for-profit company versus sort of doing something else? You know, the funny thing is, is we started as a non-profit just because we were working out of that uh, rehabilitative effort to work with women and children in Ethiopia. And so we started as a nonprofit, but three years in, our lawyers told us, because of your unrelated business income tax or UBIT, you have to separate out and become a for-profit, that we were a threat to the charter of the nonprofit. So it really wasn't an intentional decision, but uh, as we switched to the for-profit, what that ended up doing, Nick, is it gave us the opportunity to scale in ways that we had never imagined. And so I think there's two things that happened. Number one, it helped us to scale. In the last four years, we've gone uh, just in Nashville from working with four to five employees, and now there's 86 of us in Nashville, 83 of which are women. So we are a brilliantly women-run company. But I also think, interestingly, if you're trying to get competitive and drive uh, consumer demand around excellent products that provide fair and living wages to the people making them, I think it's important to be a for-profit because you don't then depend on um, kind of this unrealistic space of not meeting, of meeting losses by raising dollars from donors. You know, in the business space, if you run out of money, your business shuts down. And then at that point, you are no longer able to scale and have a realistic impact in the industry. And so we believe that by being a for-profit, we get to create a scalable model that fights against extreme poverty. All right. And Barrett, you know, I remember, I don't remember the full story, um, and we may not have time to go into all of it, but you've gotten some interesting popular press over the years. And so sort of give our listeners an an instance of that. And also, like, what are you most excited about moving forward? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of potential growth opportunity for you. You know, we're always grateful for the people that will proliferate the message. I mean, you know, we had Fast Company just last week do a really beautiful video on Able. They, they have a game-changing series um, that they did, and you could watch a video on us there. And we've had amazing people like Minka Kelly or Kristen Bell or Julian Hoff or Jessica Alba post about our fashion but also our mission. But the reality is, and, and you know, is it, it has to be a consumer-driven movement. Um, and so we, we really believe in our consumer that they are a – they're, first of all, they're a woman because we're a women's uh, product company. But they're also savvy and they're smart and they want to identify with brands that aren't pushing an overconsumption message, but they're pushing a, a, a responsible consumption message. And so that, that's, what, that's who we identify with. And then I just think what we're most excited about is, you know, 
if I get to spend the next 10 to 15 years of my career really focused on making sure that everybody in the fashion industry puts on their products a nutritional label that lets people know how much the person makes that made that product, that that is what I'm most excited about. Because I just know, again, that if consumers can tap into that information, they'll just make the choice to buy the product from the person that is earning a living wage versus the one they don't know what's going on with that product. Well, and it's interesting because it's sort of a market pressure and a mechanism there versus sort of a regulatory pressure. Like, hey, from a government perspective, raise your wages. This is actually like if you're successful, you may be able to create competition that raises all tides, rises all tides, right? Nick, that's the entire point. I mean, you, that, you, thank you for – I'm going to write all that down because that was more succinctly said than I ever could have hoped to. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be governments that um, drive up wages. You know, there's too much money and pressure from shareholder value in the opposite direction. I mean, in national Tennessee, the, living, or the, the, um, the minimum wage is still $7.40, I think, as it was 10 years ago whereas the living wage is $11.13 is somewhere it's estimated to be. So, you know, an hour that is. So, yeah, we, we, we 100% believe that it has to be a consumer-driven movement. And that's great. So where can listeners find more about your company? So Abel's website address is livefashionable.com. Or if you just Google Abel. Uh, fashion, you'll you'll get there, um, and then also you'll see on our site about 1,200 stores around the uh, around the United States that carry our products, or boutiques around the country as well. All right, well, Barrett, that's been so great to talk to you. Um, it's great to reconnect and and hear the Able story again. Thanks again. We've been speaking with Barrett Ward, CEO and founder of Able. Um, that's a wrap for us. I, I think I got through my first solo show and I survived. So thank you all so much for sticking with me. Thank you. Um, if you have any questions about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio132 and at Wharton Social. Once again, special thank you to our guests. I'd also like to thank our program director, Patty Hall, as well as our sound engineer, Jeff Simmons, and producer, Matt Datz. I'm Nick Ashburn. You've been listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.